Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It allows us to shame people. Shame lives in the space of free will. You shame people because what they did, if I said you were a car and I put a, a brick on the accelerator and you drove off a cliff, no one's going to shame the car. You are an irrational, irresponsible car. You were a machine that had a very particular trigger that sent you in a very particular direction. And when I, you know, inject alcohol, get this response, you know, put you in this situation, get this response. We're just, there's just, there's all this evidence stacking up that people respond to exactly what their brain experiences. If I cut out your motor cortex, you cannot free will your way into moving. It's not going to happen. All right, Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Mark Weinstein, here to tell you thank you so much for continuing to listen along. I've been having a blast with this show, as you know, and I really appreciate all of the all of you who have contributed to the Patreon account uh, to help sustain the show and the work that we do here. I also really appreciate any love that you can give by sharing every episode on social media, if it resonates with you, and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes, which really helps to grow the audience. So keeping it real up front, just sending you some love and appreciation, and I hope that you all can uh, can continue to support the show in, in whatever way feels right for you. Then I also just want to apologize. I wasn't able to release an episode last week. Uh, I was actually on vacation, and the episodes are starting to come a little bit closer to live these days, which is really cool because sometimes we speak about current events on the show and then, you know, a month will go by a backlog and it won't be able to be as relevant. Uh, I don't know about you all, but in these times right now, it feels like uh, one, one week is like a month or maybe even a quarter at this point. Time is just accelerated and flying by. And so I have a few gaps in guests over the coming weeks and I might fill those in with a solo episode, which I have yet to do on this podcast. So if you have any ideas of topics that you'd like me to speak about, my email is always open, marc at thelookuppodcast.com. And if you have any guest recommendations, you can also uh, send those my way. So this episode is awesome. I have a friend named Dr. Don Vaughn coming on the show. Don is a PhD and a neuroscientist who focuses on making it easy to communicate really challenging scientific uh, subject matter to a wider audience. He's also the VP of Data and Insights at a new company called Invisibly, whose mission is to help humans gain the tools and power they need to choose how they experience the digital world. Don explains a recent experiment that he ran with his mentor, David Eagleman, uh, to determine whether our brains care about other people and in which situations we talk about the difference between video conferencing and two-way audio uh, and how that affects the neural centers that determine our ability to empathize with the other, which is part of the explanation of why there's so much vitriol online and social media forums uh, as those empathy centers are shut off when we're not able to recognize the human and we're registering them as text or a cartoon avatar. 
We talk about tribalism and how it is inherent in human nature as demonstrated by a recent experiment that uh, Dr. Don and Dr. Eagleman performed. We talk about the superpower of attention, brain plasticity, the difference between compassion and empathy. And we also chat a bit about free will and, and the hard problem of neuroscience, which is consciousness and whether or not we can mechanically or biologically enhance an individual's or our collective empathy. Dr. Don is extremely knowledgeable, as you'll see from this episode. I learned a lot. We actually had to cut it short as I was running a few minutes late to recording, but I think that uh, I'm going to invite him back on to do a second episode, so hopefully it can work with his schedule. And I actually, if you have any any guests that you'd like to hear from again, I've been considering bringing a few back on for follow-up episodes because there's just so much to discuss in such little time. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you all so much again for listening. And without further ado, this is Dr. Don Vaughn. You know, I feel like this pandemic is, you know me. I mean, we spent such a great trip together. I felt like we connected deeply and I, you know, I'm just very social. I love talking with people. I love seeing your face. I love uh, just just being with people. And and with this pandemic, I was like, oh man, I'm worried. I'm working from home now. The office is gone. I was really worried about having a going into like a mild depression or something. And um, and there's just been a full pivot. I think I think you know, just starting this right off, like video conferencing and the ability to see other people is just a, such an important component to empathy. <laughs> You got to be able to see somebody in order to to have this connection, and so I I feel like I have my I see people during the day, I see my family, and uh, and life is moving. Can we use that? I'm we're we to the audience members. This is Dr. Don Vaughn. We actually hadn't started recording yet, um, but I just love that so much. I think that's a great place to start. So, you know, uh, you're a neuroscientist. You just mentioned how important it is to see. Um, the other person through video conferencing. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think my it's kind of plugs into my big mission. My big mission is that everybody can accept and acknowledge that we are are dealt some biology that shapes how we interact with the world, and that's kind of abstract. So specifically, we show empathy sometimes. We don't show it other times. I have a paper out and an article in the Economist about this because it's been a deep focus of my research of. It's critical. When, when do we care about each other and, and what causes biases such that we don't care about somebody because of a label or because of something else? And uh, one thing that we found that was key was that we, we would put people in a brain scanner, in this case an MRI, and we would look at their brain when people would watch videos of a hand being stabbed with a needle. And you get this Ooh. body. It's crit, yeah. I, uh, audience members, I am terrified of needles. And for you, Don, that's like, that's my phobia. So if I saw that, I might actually pass out just watching it. I don't know if that means I care about people more than others. I think it just means I'm really scared of needles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we screen people based on, uh, you know, if they had too strong of a aversion to needles because, yeah, then you're getting to another territory. But I bet if we scanned your brain, Mark, we'd see uh, this area called the ACC. It's in the middle go off these uh, areas on the side called the insula and they uh, are activated. They're part of this empathy network that fairly reliably is what your brain shows is active when you feel empathy. And when you don't, 
see those areas active, people tend to report being less empathic. And at the extreme end of that, you can get something like psychopathy, where there's very little activation, presumably because there's underlying, there's a something different about the biology itself. You know, imagine if you weren't dealt the brain cells in the right places to feel empathy, would you expect someone to feel empathy anyways? Like, would you do, do we expect sort of consciousness magic to happen? Maybe. Um, and maybe there's rehab. We can talk about that. But back to the experiment, it's just we showed these videos and we got a, it, it wasn't like they saw the person in real life. They just saw a video and there's these strong empathic responses. And then on the other end of that, you talk to people on Facebook and Twitter. And then I, right now it's just a, it's a text box. And they, people say the, the, some of the meanest and most hurtful things on there nonstop. And I think a lot of that is because it just doesn't trigger our natural biological expectation of a person looking like a person in front of us and video calls somehow get around that. And so I feel connected with the people still that I work with, that I see on these calls. And I, it's just like, what a wonderfully, what a wonderful solution to a tough situation. It's really interesting that you just mentioned that piece about Twitter, because that was going to be my next question. And I wanted to let you um, to finish your thought was, have you or has anyone else actually hooked at, hooked up brains to, you know, a scanner and done a test between telephone and video and seen if those empathy centers are are kind of firing um, more when you can see someone in video? God, I want to run that experiment. I have a strong hypothesis that the closer you get to the natural state that we evolved for millions of years the more empathy you're going to get. You know, if you're in VR, that's probably as good as it's going to get. And then you have two-dimensional video calls, pretty good. And then you have audio calls. I even noticed a difference. Uh, one, of my, one of my friends, Philip Rosedale, he started Second Life and he has this new, you've been on High Fidelity, right? You joined one of my High Fidelity events. I think I invited you. Maybe you didn't show up. Um, <laughs> screw you, man. But, but they're really high. They're high, high, high quality audio. And as a, as a former musician, I, that's like, it just felt like, and, and it has stereo audio, so you turn around in the space and it changes what you hear, and it, it felt, I just, everybody was a little bit more empathic there. It was like real life and not this fake construct. And then you get a text box on Twitter and you're like, that doesn't even, probably doesn't even trigger any empathy if you don't agree with the person. And so I just, it doesn't actually feel that surprised. Like maybe that's, oh my God, that's a crazy idea, but it doesn't seem that surprising to me because we, are, I'm not going to say we are biological machines, but they, we certainly have a lot of aspects of biological machines with feelings that are wonderful and incredible. But if you don't give it the inputs it expects, why would you expect the same output? And I mean, that's, this is like a, a, opening up a can of worms in, in, a, in many different worm directions to go out. Um, I'm like, I, I want to, uh, I want to explore, um, well, one thing I do want to I want to say is my, to further your hypothesis, I think uh, another hypothesis I have is that while video is certainly a step up on uh, two-way audio and two-way audio is probably a step up in terms of empathy on on text and uh, and it happens all the times in text. Also, people forget about empathy. People misread your tone, period, right? It's just like, oh, are you being sarcastic? Are you being serious? I, I can't tell. It's just all lost in translation. Um, and even like young, young people speak, they're so accustomed to text more so than we are. I mean, we were on AIM, I'm sure you're on AIM when you, you know, we were growing up, like, so 
this is another story. Like I'd be so curious to scan the brains of kind of Gen Z and see how their development has been different utilizing kind of text versus ours. You know, of course, I don't, I think you'd have to keep age as a factor that was kind of constant. So we'd have to scan their brains at our age versus ours now. But what my additional hypothesis would be that there are other, because we have other senses that are so strong when we're in person, smell being one of them. um, You know, I, I don't know. Do you, I feel like the ability to empathize is even stronger in person than it is on video. So in a way, yes, it's thank God for video calling because it helped us get through many folks in white collar jobs, get through this conference, this conference, this crisis. Um, there's a lot of conferences with video as well, but you know, I, is it still a step down from being in person from an empathy standpoint? And is there any science behind that? It's a great question. I don't, I'm not aware of any long question. No, it's a great one. Uh, you know, no, no hard science. I know about it. So we have our hypotheses about them and, uh, yeah, that's probably as far as it goes. I, no one's tested, uh, no one's tested it yet, but, but about like, you know, we're not just our visual system. When you empathize with people, you also, uh, if you could see more of their body than you do, what's called like, there's a spectrum of empathy on, you know, there might be the concept of empathy at the top and, Below that, there's these ideas of like emotional contagion and mimicry, which are kind of empathic in nature. Like whatever your arm posture is, I'll adopt it. Studies tend to report that people respond more. <laughs> we both have our hands on our heads in in the alpha peacock, elbows up, lean back, <laughs> investment banker position. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, <laughs> But, you know, um, so there's studies that show people respond more with mimicry. It's an automatic reaction between dominant and subordinates. And you see it in bosses and direct reports. And then there's things like emotional contagion, which is like, I don't know if I call it empathy, but you hear a baby screaming. And so you have a particular emotional response. Maybe it's empathy. Maybe it's not. Um, it's made a little more automatic. So and so the the point with all of that is just that you know, there's in person, there's all this other stuff going on. There's looking at body posture, which you don't really get in calls. Like I can't tell if your keys are on the keyboard or, or actually paying attention to me. Um, and the smells and the, and the, and the sounds, yeah, there's all that you get that are more high fidelity. So there's just a lot going on. And again, it's just, if you, if you, if you take my sort of simple concept that we're dealt some biology, then that's how the machine expects all these inputs. It can survive with just a text box. Stud and function the same. So I guess, you know, you mentioned the the article that you wrote for The Economist and, you know, I guess what was the ultimate answer to the question, does your does your brain care about other people? Oh, man, it's uh, it's pretty it's simple in a way that it, it's I don't know if it's sad. It's just again, this is the biology that we're dealt, which is that we take people into a brain scanner. We showed them the stabbing videos. Uh, we had about 100 people and you get a particular brain response. You get this empathy network. And then we did a zoo, very simple manipulation, which is we added a text label above the box and it would say Muslim or Christian, uh, Buddhist, uh, atheist, Scientologist, uh, I, think, I think Jewish. And um, so there's six different people. And then you'd watch those get hit, stabbed. And then we'd look at your brain's empathic response and you would self-report your religion uh, afterwards. And so then... We were able to see what was your, you know, not what you say, do I care about all people equally, but we'd look at your brain activity when you saw somebody you are religiously an in-group versus an out-group with, and you get an immediate bifurcation that your in-group has 
more activity in the empathy network in your brain, and the out group has less activity. It's not zero, but it's less. And these aren't, you know, it wasn't strongly, super strong. It was all sorts of levels of religiosity, but on the average, it wasn't just intense um, religion. And so religiosity. And so it just goes to show like you didn't meet this person. They're not even real. It's just a video of a hand being stabbed. It's not, you don't see a person, you don't see a face. And so it goes to show that unfortunately we are dealt a brain that categorizes in groups and out groups automatically and with consequence. There's, it's not a, it's not like, oh, I know they're different, but I don't feel any differently. It looks like you actually feel differently from nothing more than a single one word label. And then, you know, that's, that, that is the result that it was as it stands. But we asked a couple other questions where if you start putting people on groups of, you know, hands with labels on teams, you start to get allies that pop out as somewhere in the middle of the empathy spectrum where they were an out group, but now they are on your team. They're more like somewhere in the middle between an in group and an out group member. And then we took it one step further. Interesting. Which is how fast can we, it's not radicalized, but in that vein, you know, like how fast can you bifurcate empathy? And so we had people come into the scanner in a different experiment and they'd flip a coin. So I'd give them a quarter and they'd flip it. And if it was heads, they were on one team. And if it was tails, they were on another team. And the point of the coin flip is, you know, you're assigned randomly to one of these groups. This is kind of like one of these old, uh, you know, Eagles and Rattlers experiments that are famous in social psych about how you can get boys at camps in this experiment to love their group and hate the other group despite absolutely no differences. Uh, and then you find it's not as strong as an effect, but you find in our experiment exactly that, which is that there is a difference in empathy based on labels for a team that you know is made up and you know is arbitrary, and yet you still care about them a little bit more. Wow. And, wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me of that this movie that I watched when I was younger called The Wave. And The Wave was this, uh, it was a classroom experiment on Nazism where basically the teacher, the teacher intentionally created in groups and out groups and you just watch blue eyes and green eyes. I don't know if it was blue eyes and green eyes, but it was, um, I, I, I don't, I forget what it was based on if it was genetic or if it was, you know, or biologic biological, or if it was just the teacher assigned groups and then it created this, you know, this, this scenario, but it's fascinating that it could happen so quickly, even just with a coin flip, which you know is arbitrary and random almost as arbitrary and random as, as birth, I guess, or more so, um, definitely more so. Um, but yeah, that's, that's wild. And I guess, you know, it's, it's science, right? So then you can kind of go on top of it and say, well, is this good or bad? And probably the answer is it's just so, but if we want different outcomes, um, I guess you mentioned that there are some, you know, and you've spoken on neurohacking before, like, can we enhance the empathetic centers of our brains? And are there practices that we can put in place um, on our own? And then are there, you know, more scientific practices um, that maybe supplements or things like that, that we can use to enhance our empathy? Uh, so I'll leave it with that. And then I've got some other questions for you. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, uh, I think, you know, hard, if you, if you're just hardcore scientific method, it doesn't, there's no good and bad associated. There's just this predicts this. That's all science is, you know, labeling groups predicts differences in empathy of this degree. That's what it says. And then we, 
as a society have to take a step back and say, shit, now, now what? What are we going to do when we're everybody on average, you know, maybe there's some exceptions. If you really meditate for a long time, you can sort of bypass this. But on average, we see it's pretty widespread that we're going to behave this way and we're dealt this. Maybe if you raise people in a different way, it would be different. I don't know. I can't speak to that. I can just say the state of the world right now is that this is what happens. What can we do is the only question. I just I don't like to live in right and wrong land because it, that just bifurcates everybody. Everyone can at least get on board with well, what do we do? So. Yeah. So what do we do? Well, I list a couple um, strategies in my economist article. One of them is to is to build a better mental model of others. So it's to learn the commonalities and similarities that we share, which are way more on average. You know, we share a lot more DNA than we're different. And it's to, it's to learn about, you know, to read li literature is a great example of just getting a mental model of what it's like to be somebody else using VR software that can now, it can, you can have different skin color in VR, you can change body sizes and um, a whole host of attributes. And, you know, again, without faulting people, I, I think there's just been a trend in faulting you for not having a perspective. And I just, I don't think that's going to fly very long. People don't, people don't like to be told that they're bad and inferior for very long until they go say, screw yourself. And I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. Um, so instead it's like, okay, well here, here's, here's some exposure you could get that'll actually build a better mental model because we've all lived in our particular social enclaves and we only get the experience that we get. You don't get an experience of everyone in the world. You don't travel the world all the time. Um, why would you expect to know what it's like to live in Pakistan? Why would you know what it's like to be, you know, um, living in other parts of the world that are much less well off than the United States or anywhere else? Um, we don't on average. So reading, VR, um, traveling, I think those are all really solid ways to build the internal mental model. And then secondly, that I think that only that can that, that's sort of personally driven and, and you have to get people it's a pull thing. You have to get people interested enough to want to take that step. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more people are doing that, which is good. But on the the other solution is it's structural, which is I don't think these biases are going away. No, I don't see a lot of evidence that debiasing training works. In fact, most studies show that it doesn't. Uh, mm -hmm. you get reactions. So it's like, okay, good intention, didn't work. It's just about the facts. So we need to set up a society where you are, you, you, you acknowledge these biases exist and you try and remove them before they get the situation before it can even arise. So for example, one of the most successful ones was um, doing orchestra auditions behind a curtain. So you don't know what the person looks like. You don't know what gender they are. You don't know anything about it. You're just judging them on the quality of the music. Why do you need to know what they look like? It just seemed like a thing to do, but um, if you put, you start getting more diversity in orchestras when you do that. So that's a structural solution, right? It's like, we know you're biased. I know you're trying your best or you're trying it all, or maybe you're not trying. So we're just gonna remove the opportunity for that bias to even exist. It's about in Silicon Valley, if you're a coder, submitting your code and not having your name or anything to do with it on there. It's the quality of what you do, not you know these attributes that we don't think matter. Um, and for how your performance is. So those are those structural solutions are um, are are probably the the way forward. Interesting. And then are are there also others? I mean, I, I think Kernel is is one example. I believe they were working on empathy technology at some point. I don't know if they abandoned that, but are there others that are um, that are exploring this area? You know, in terms of 
biologically or mechanically enhancing our our empathy for one another. And then the, a follow-up question I have to this is, in the field of neuroscience, do you um, differentiate between compassion and empathy? Or is that more of like a psychology? Because I've heard that be, those two being um, separated. And I'd be curious for your take on that. These are all just such such great questions, Mark. So the first one, uh, yeah, with Kernel and Neuralink, I, um, I don't think that you're going to get neural technology put into people's brains for decades. Mm-hmm for people who are otherwise neurologically healthy mm-hmm. normal quote unquote whatever that means anymore just but but i mean i i think on top of brains is probably going to come sooner rather than later you, you don't think so nah. like not in insertion yeah like totally I, I i don't see that although there are people that wear those things on the back of their arm that track their blood you know blood sugar levels and whatnot already just for putting one of those and you have infection risk um, you have a whole host of problems. I mean, they're, they're great, but if you if you didn't have to do it, you probably wouldn't do it. Um, yeah. Very few people do it just to quantify themselves. You know, some people want to know their glycemic response so they can optimize performance, which is which is great. But uh, no one's going to stick things in your head. And you're right. So on top of the brain is the way to go. But the problem is like you're it's it's a mass, absolutely massive, massive loss in um, signal. I mean, you're losing. It'd be like going inside of a soccer match and uh, being next to people and talking about the game and what's going on. That's what it's like to measure inside the brain versus standing outside the stadium 10 blocks away. (laughs) Like, okay. you That really, that really puts it in perspective. Actually, that was a great analogy. You can can hear goals, but you're not going to hear anyone's conversation. You're not going to hear the, you're not going to hear all the nuance. And you're talking about, something is even as basic as fine motor movement in your fingers and the, the amount of muscles that need to move with the precise coordination of your motor cortex and the premotor cortex before then and everything unpacking it, it, it I think it's not, it's not hopeless. So I don't want to go that far, but it's really difficult. And there's, there's some good videos of, you know, people moving robotic arms um, once they have uh, lost a limb. Um, but it's, it's, they pick the best clips and overall it's still pretty rough. So we're so we're decades out from we're decades out from something going inside of the brain and the stuff that goes on top of your head is still it just it, the signal loss is too great for it to really be impactful. Yeah, you Facebook I think their F8 or something said like I don't know a couple of years ago they were going to read like 100 words a minute out of your head and then you know now that we're just overwhelmed all the time with communication no one calls it on it but that's not going to happen. I'll, I don't know if that's how long it's been <laughs> I can tell you right now. That's not going to happen, and they're going to say nothing else about it. And and the second question was on compassion versus empathy, and I'm going to give an example. I've heard it said that our president is extremely empathetic um, in that he really understands his his um, his audience, let's say, and he understands how to communicate with people, and he really understands what people's desires are, and he can empathize in that way, but he doesn't have, at least on the surface, it seems compassion. Um, and so compassion in, in the definition, in that case is kind of described as like caring for the other versus understanding emotionally the other. Is that a scientific differentiation or no? Sorry, I'd keep. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, you know, people, the word empathy, you know, puts people generally in the right ballpark, but when you, uh, but there's some big differentiations and you can see it in brain activity actually. Cause re remember this, maybe this is a bit like philosophical, but words are just words. They're not fun. I don't believe there are any fundamental facts about the universe. Like there's not a thing called empathy. There is a whole group of behaviors that are generally in that space and empathy prob this word empathy probably refers to whatever ones you think it refers to and it's just for communication so the question for us is always when you look at brain networks are they actually meaningful different or this is just a fun thing that we say and that was my example earlier about like emotional mimicry like are you going to call it empathy or not like and then when i change it is that you empathy cross your arms yeah 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 so uh, so but it's generally good and i would say that there's uh, empathy is feeling with someone so when you mm. actually experience their emotions automatically and unconsciously that when you get stabbed with a needle, I feel bad, period. Which is distinct from sympathy, which is feeling for someone, and that is understanding their situation, and uh, you don't necessarily feel that same emotion, but you there's some amount of emotion there, but it's more about, uh, we also kind of use it fairly interchangeably with this idea of mentalizing, with the idea to understand what another, like if I said, oh yeah, this, uh, this guy who bullied me in high school lost his job. And then, okay, did, right, there was no automatic response. So instead you have to go unpack it. Okay, so it was Donnie uh, when he was a little kid and somebody's bullying him, so he was bad and something bad happened to him. So maybe I have some schadenfreude and uh, that's good. So I should feel good for that. Okay, and maybe Don feels good about that. Uh, you know, so you had to do this <laughs> mental work, right? This distinctly, this is one of the things that makes this, you know, us, the, as humans, like an incredible creation of the universe that we can do that. That's not easy to create a world and do counterfactuals and this and, and, and make assumptions about it and, and mentalize. So this idea of mentalizing is more about sympathy. So when you talk about Trump, it might be more that what you're picking on is uh, or pointing to is that he's, he can mentalize, like he can understand at least his followers and why he is that way, but he may or may not have empathy for what actually is happening to people. And that also is distinctive with when something happens in front of him, he can have empathy potentially, but that doesn't mean that when he gets a news headline about you know people being detained at the border, that that triggers anything, right? So that gets back to our earlier discussion that it's not, it, we only have so much time, so we like to go with the nice, clear explanations, but it's pretty nuanced of like, you can feel one way about people, but when you read about them, you don't care at all because you don't get the right, you don't get the same inputs that you're expected to, like that, that's not something that happens. And you can be empathic, but not sympathetic or vice versa. Um, so you can respond strongly when someone you love gets hurt in front of you, but when you read about someone, you have a tough time understanding the complexities. Potentially that's, you know, these mentalizing things are potentially the networks that are affected in some uh, different mental health disorders that you're just not really able to understand fully someone else's perspective or why they might feel a certain way. And then I'll just say that that's probably different from compassion, which is actually probably entangled with morality a little bit more, which is like it's, I, empathy. I didn't say anything about morality. Like you get stabbed. I feel a certain way. You can call it good or bad if you want, but it just is what I feel. It works the same with laughter and disgust and other emotions. It's not just for pain. Mm. Sympathy is then the ability to kind of understand someone else's mental state. And maybe there's some feeling in there, um, but those are two very distinct networks that I pulled out in one of my experiments and has been pulled out before, but they're, they're totally different brain regions. And you can up, you can have changes to either one independently. And then that's different from compassion, which is probably what we say as society. I haven't even looked up the definition of compassion, but I'm just riffing that it would be that you're 
you're caring for people that need it. And so that's a good thing. And so there's some morals. Well, I, I think like when I think about compassion, I think about the meta the, and, and neuroscience. I think about the studies done on the Buddhist monks, the famous studies of, of those who have practiced like a meta meditation for, you know, for years. Um, the results showed that they had an enhanced level of, I think it, the word used was compassion, but then I guess my question is like, where is compassion triggered in the brain versus empathy? And were they just actually speaking about the empathic centers in the brain and using a different word because it was Buddhism? Yeah, it's a real, I, I, uh, Tanya, I know the only work I know on this is by Tanya Singer. She was, a. Uh, um, uh, she had the this famous paper in 2004 and 2006, so it's been a while, but on sort of laying out the empathy network and how it gets modulated by, you know, interactions with people. Uh, it was in nature and science. They were, they were, they were big papers. Um, and then I don't know if she ever published this work, but I remember her talking about, they went and they asked, uh, Buddhist monks to meditate on unbridled compassion for the world. And they had different levels of it. So I want you to meditate on unbridled compassion for the world at 30%. Now I want you to meditate at 50%. Now I want you to meditate at 100%. And what they, what they look for is then brain regions that moved up according to that. Um, so it's called the parametric analysis because you're you're looking for level changes here. And uh, I think my recollection is it was, it was empathy network um, changes. So mm -hmm. those that care, that feeling of caring, I mean, maybe it really does boil down to just those two things, which is there's the feeling associated with caring and there's the mental hardware for understanding. And those are totally, they don't overlap at all in my work um, and most other people's work. And so when you are, if you're, if you're really thinking about compassion and you frame it in terms of caring for other people, you would expect the empathy network to show up. And if you said, I want you to meditate on unbridled understanding of, of somebody else's situation, which is, you know, more like, what do we, we call it? Cognitive empathy sometimes, but sympathy, cognitive empathy, mentalizing, they're all close enough. Um, Yes. So I think that's probably the answer. I mean, sorry if this is too deep, but it's just. No, no, it's not. I mean, I love, I love to go deep. I, I love the, the nuance. I mean, the reason I do a podcast, I think podcasting has, gives us the opportunity to kind of go into nuance that is otherwise washed away in this media landscape. And, um, you know, we just, we don't have, there's so much content out there. We don't have time, but if we have the opportunity to really listen to a, a whole episode of a podcast, it can shed a lot of light. Um, and that's why I think this new app Clubhouse is interesting because it's kind of like social media with audio and therefore you're connected. Yeah, I heard about Clubhouse. I think they have the same model as High Fidelity, right? You're like in a 2D map and you can hear each other. It's not like a Zoom. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not like a Zoom. You're in a 2D map. You can hear each other, but it allows for kind of these long, you know, these these more nuanced discussions to happen where it's not just one person kind of like tweeting at the other and then the other person just trying to like hold their position. The, the challenge is it's just another, it's just another forum. It's another, you know, it's another space to allocate attention. And I just feel like our attention is so in demand um, these days. It's, it's truly like, I consider attention like, like a valuable commodity. It's like a valuable resource. And I guess that's a really good segue into kind of the work that into the work that you're doing um, at Invisibly, uh, where you are part of a team that is building a a new model for advertising on the web. So I'd love to hear about that and and what potentially what the science is behind that as well. Oh God, you gave me goosebumps. I guess I I sort of found this area that I really 
you know, this work in, I'll just do a, a segue to that segue, which is, uh, you know, my work in neuroscience on empathy was, was I loved it. It was fascinating. I, I sort of put a pin in that. And I started looking at attention, which my colleague, uh, Agatha uh, Leonardo, which describes as a superpower. It's pretty, it's pretty goddamn amazing, actually, when you think about it. Like, think about right now, your eyeball is taking in this entire visual world, and you're only aware either of my face or of your notes or of social media, whatever you're doing right now, but you, your brain has a top. <laughs> I'm not on social media, but I've got my, I've got a couple of notes and one of your articles pulled up. So, <laughs> yeah, um, but right. You're, it's a superpower where the same exact stuff's coming in and you're internally just turning one little part up and uh, all and, and squelching all the rest. It's amazing that you can based on your goal. So I say, Oh, I really want to connect with Mark right now. So my, I'm on your eyes and I've and I have no attention to anything else that's going on. My brain's just taking care of that effortlessly for me. Audio comes in the background and these calls, and you can tune it out usually pretty well. So that's attention. Attention is a superpower of taking the machinery you already have to process the world and focusing on what is important and turning off what's not important. It's not this universal magic where everything gets better. Studies are very clear that when you attend to one thing, you are slower at, re at responding to things that are outside what you're attending to. So it's it's a plus this, minus this, depending on my goal. It's not magic. And, and so I, uh, I think attention is, I've got so interested in it. Um, I started work with Harley Davidson. They wanted to know, you know, what's going on in the heads of their riders because people tend to report when riding motorcycles that they get stress reductions. Um, do you yeah, flow state. No, I don't, but I'm, di I'm dying to. I've been riding a scooter out here. And um, the only, when I went to get my motorcycle license in Los Angeles, uh, on the way, you know, like DMV classes are very strict about getting there on time. Well, on the way we were delayed and we ended up getting locked out of the classroom with five minutes left. But the reason we were delayed was because there was a motorcycle accident on the way. And so I was like, maybe this is a sign that I shouldn't be getting my motorcycle in Los Angeles. And we could talk about kind of the superstitions, um, superstition and how it's tied to the brain maybe as well, if you know where that came from. <laughs> but that was just like pattern, pattern matching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I was interested in getting attention. It was to me a fascinating way to get at it. People report this. So we actually scanned the brains of motorcycle riders as they were actually riding their, their bikes. We got, uh, I think it was uh, 49 or 50 uh, in total. I'm, I'm putting the paper out right now. But um yeah, there was a cool, interesting idea of flow state. And then Harley has some partnerships with some um, uh, athletes, some incredible athletes. So I got to scan Scotty James, who's an Olympic gold medalist and uh, Snowboard snowboarder. A, snowboarder, yeah. He won the yeah, Super Pipe uh, in the X Games. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So uh, so I got to see what's going on in the brains of people when they're in the flow state, in so attending to what they're doing that everything else is not, almost non existent. I mean, that's part of what the flow state is it's effortless attention and enthusiasm um, for what you're doing in some cases, not always. So, so we did that, I got interested in attention, and then uh, I just, I, I have a pretty simple formula for it that I, I realized, which is that we evolved to communicate with a few people, maybe up to 100 or 150 in small groups as hunter-gatherers, that's what our brain's based off of. And there's, in that world, there's, you don't talk all the time, there's natural barriers like other things to do, I don't have the energy to talk. I, we don't speak the same language. You're far away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we are in a world where all those constraints have been removed. So the market has readjusted and now you, you are messaged and communicated with all the time by people. And you now have supercomputers, massive data trails, 
and machine learning algorithms that are happy to crunch all that data and find exactly the right time to message you exactly what they think will you will click on at that exact moment. And they, they're essentially finding correlates of our biology of maybe late at night, Don has low willpower because he worked all day. He's more likely to click on my ad and buy my, what did I buy late at night? I bought like a, like a, like one of those damn shopping channels. I bought like a, a chocolate <laughs> subscription every month. And I was hanging, I, was like, I really want chocolate and I don't have anything in my, I'm stuck in my house. Um, and so I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe that was stupid, but, um, but that's when they got me. And so I, I came to the conclusion that um, in, a, in a world where it's our evolved brains, which will no longer change significantly versus ever better algorithms and supercomputers, we lose. And I guess that's kind of in parallel with what Elon thinks. I think he thinks about it more generally, but I mean specifically with the tension, they're just gonna pin you down and um, you have no, yeah, you have, go for it. No, I'm, I'm agreeing. I was, I was just, I was going to say, you know, in, in all of the early episodes and research that I was doing on the attention economy for Look Up, which was really, this is why I launched this podcast. So I'm happy we're talking about this. Um, yeah, the, the foremost thinkers on this were always like, the best thing you can do is remove your phone from your presence or from your room. And I'm like, that's great. However, you know, your AirPods are in your ears, your Apple Watch is on your wrist. And soon enough, you, you think kind of more than 10 years out, but there will be implants, think contact lenses, like AR contact lenses, you know, whatever, that will be on your body more often than not, and you won't be able to turn it off. And so, you know, if the machine learning algorithms are winning, um, and they are, because it's you versus an army of devs at Facebook and and ad agencies that, that are I mean, there's no, it, you're, you're one human, right? Like it is, attention is a superhuman power in, in today's world. And then another thing that comes to mind um, is Dunbar's number. And Dunbar's number for listeners is this, this maximum number of individuals that you can, I believe, maybe it's not empathize is the word, but that you can ag agree with or understand. And, and so like that breaks after, I think it's like 26 individuals or something like that. So you talk about tribalism, you talk about in and out group, but then you t then the enormous amount of people and companies who act like people and advertisements who act like your friend that you interact with. It's, it's, it's shocking that we even have any traction in any direction. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and so um, when you think of, the, you know, this, that sort of reminds me of my mentor, uh, David Eagleman, his book uh, on, it's called, it's called Livewired. It's coming out. Uh, on the 25th of August, which I guess is probably when this about when this will be released, but it's about how the brain, it's called live wired because it's how the brain's constantly rewiring itself. And so I have to believe that all these things are getting incorporated into our neural circuits. Does that explain the rise in ADHD cases? Maybe, maybe not, but I think we can all, we don't need a bunch, we don't need too much science to realize something about humanity is changing. Like I love your emails uh, on your newsletters. I just feel like you crystallize what's going on into these beautiful summaries, which is, Thank Which you. is what an expert does now. It's like there's a bunch of noise. The experts were supposed to distill it to make, make the least amount of attention that we need to deploy to get a huge payoff. Because the, really it boils down to a bit of a sidestep, but like the brain is a, you are a moving battery and you run out, you evolved running out of energy until you found your next meal. So your brain, when there's a lot of evolution that's pushed you not to burn too much energy and your brain burns 20% of it, even though it's only like two or 3% of your body mass. 
So it's really expensive. Neurons are super expensive. They got to repolarize and get ions and fire and over. They fire tens, hundreds of times a second. And, and yet from an energy standpoint, our brain is still, I think, orders of magnitude better from an energy in output out than the machines that we're speaking about as well. Super efficient. De- yeah, depending on the task. Yeah, they're very, very efficient. Um, and still, they've been still they by absorb not a, food. Yeah, they absorb a lot of energy. And that's part of why like attention is a superpower and it probably requires more energy to, to do that than it is to just sit there and do nothing. And so that's why people don't, you don't want it. You, you run, you feel drained at the end of the day when you have to be pulled in all these directions. And so I, uh, I came to the conclusion that there's only two ways out of this. One, and there's two steps. One of them is you need to be intentionally, you need to intentionally control how people communicate with you. You need to, inten- you need to take, you need to take back control of your attention. And so I mean things like I have a whole list of, you know, not brain acts, they're just suggestions on what you do down from uh, keep your phone out of literally physically away from you. Why does it need to be right next to you? If you, unless you're just going to be interrupted, stop. Um, let me, let me just back up. The model shifts from I'm available to I'm not, I'm never available unless I tell you. And like you said earlier, from, from blacklist to whitelist, that is a shift that needs to happen. You are your brain and your attention. You are too valuable when you do deep focus work to be contacted by everybody. You're it's think of think of the world as now you need an agent and I'm calling it advocational AI. I'm calling it the concept that machines are now your agent. If you put the incentives right to act on your behalf and protect you. Um, so turn off notifications, put in, I have an email blocker that pauses my inbox. And if you don't, you know, it only sends me email once a day. At, at the end of the day, when I'm ready to actually deal with it, and urgent emails can get through, but the default is you cannot talk to me. I'm not reachable for your pleasure and your monetization. I un- I have site blockers so that I don't go to Facebook because I now I'm addicted to it because I find myself with the ha- I will literally open a tab, type F, and hit enter without me consciously being aware of it, and that's when we've lost control. Hmm. Yeah, it happens to me all the time. I mean, you know, you pick up your phone for a task. And then you've swiped, you've swiped through five different, or I pick up a phone for a task and I've swiped through five different social media apps before I know what hit me. And I wake up 40 minutes later and it's like, WTF, what was that thing that I picked up my phone to do in the first place? Oh yeah, it was to tell my mom that I'll see her in 10 minutes and I'm 30 minutes late. It's so funny until you're like, this is not, this is the new normal, but it isn't, it was never normal. This didn't happen this often. So well, I love I love the concept of kind of, I call them pocket AIs. And I think about them as kind of like a friend in your pocket. And I had an early guest on the show as my friend, Andrew Murray Dunn, who created Ciempo. And Ciempo was now as a browser extension, but it was originally an app or a new operating system too for Android phones that had a lot of these things as as the default, grayscale as default. You open the phone, you slide it open, they ask you, what is your intention? It didn't just go straight to the screen of, of, the, of all the candy drops and, and you know, colorful sweeteners that just, you know, those, those sugary sweets on your phone that are just so tempting to click and all of that. Now, the, one of the challenges is then we also have this economic, so you said incentives. That struck this chord with me because incentives are super important. So the AI has to be programmed in a way that it's incentivized to protect our attention as individuals. You're born with it maybe, right? Like from the day I am born, I have this AI and its sole purpose is to protect me. Now this gets into weird dystopian shit like mother, right? Like the purpose- I haven't seen it. Mother is on Netflix, a spoiler alert for those of you that haven't seen it, but the purpose of this, this AI was created to protect 
humanity. And of course, we know, you know, if you have to protect us from ourselves, then that's a slippery slope because we do self-destructive things, but it's part of the freedom that we love so much. And, but the other layer of incentives, so if, assuming you could get those incentives right, the other layer of incentives are these economic incentives. And it just seems like anyone that creates technology is an advocate for, for bettering humanity with a few exceptions, um, bettering the individual, not humanity, because things like, you know, communication platforms for us to be able to communicate with someone in India or, or remote teams or whatever. Yeah, they might, ca- we sacrifice some attention for increased, like in increased exposure, which I think is really valuable. But the economic model for individual protection seems to break. So the economic model of the web is ad- is advertising, right? And if the pro- if the product is free, then we're the product, and our, the product is clearly our attention. And I think you were getting there, and I, that was long winded. No, that was spot on. That's exactly it. Which is just to me, if I would summarize, I'd say we evolved the particular way of attending to things. It's vulnerable. Machines are are beating us, and will continue to beat us, and take advantage of it. They're just going to make more addicting products, not less ones. Technology only moves really in one direction. And uh, I mean, if you simplify it. And uh, so then the only thing you can do is intentionally take control and get uh, advocational and AI on your side. That's the only way to fight back. And so that's why I, uh, I joined Invisibly years ago to start thinking about this problem. And it's sort of come to, it's come, become really a lot clearer in the last, uh, in the last few months. But we are now, you know, I'm not sure what we can say, what can I say so far, that we are creating a, a, a way for this to actually occur on the real on the real web where you are in control. I mean, do you know that feeling when you go to a site and you get a bunch of ads from some, and they buy out all the ad slots and you get stalked on a web and there's nothing you can do about it. And then you pretend that you can and they and you click ad choices, which is in the top right. And that actually doesn't work. It's just this thing to, that advertisers created to not get regulated. Oh yeah, you have choice. No, you don't. Um, it doesn't work. <laughs> and it doesn't work. And it also is taxing to, you know, there's a difference between freedom and uh, permission. I'm just saying this for the first time, but permission is letting you do something. But if you have to do this annoying movement, you have to read the terms of service every time. It's not really freedom. I mean, nobody reads the terms of service. Like who the who the fuck has time to read, you know, an hour and a half contract of terms of service when they want to go on on a, a you know, an article that they want to read. Yeah, read? Mark, I, I'd love to get your input. And, and if your listeners, when they read this, have any- Part of my French. <laughs> <laughs> how do you, I want to coin a term for what's the thing when, what's, how do you summarize this when you technically have permission to do something, but you don't because it just requires effort and there's too many things going on in your world. So it's like oppression by, by like a thousand cuts. And, and the opposite of this yeah, is like soft paternalism where like, you know, they'll opt you into organ donations in countries and you won't opt out even though you can. So you get higher organ donation rates. But the opposite is what big tech does. Sure, your data is available, but are you really going to go down there, request it, wait for it to be processed, open the zip file, open the JSON and scroll through there? And do you have the, do you have the tech literacy even to really be able to do it? Like, I, 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 that's a good question. I think, you know, it's, one is it's 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 oppression via I think it's oppression via literacy gap. Like I not only do I not have the technological literacy to really understand the data trail that I leave on on the web, but I don't have the legal literacy to understand my rights in the terms and, and agreements, uh, terms of services that I have to read. And there there's this great documentary, Terms and Conditions Will Apply, that came out a few years back. 
And, and then even if I did, I'd have to ultimately, if I saw something in the contract, it's not like I can go and say, hey, you, like, I, I love your service. I think this is phenomenal. But can we remove clause, you know, Roman numeral seven, uh, lowercase a, triple I from this contract, just this one piece, and then I can use your service? Can we negotiate on that? You don't have the fucking ability to do that. So like, what is the point? And it's like, well, it's a free market. You can opt into my service or you cannot. And these are the terms that you have to deal with. And it's like, well, for in some countries, Facebook is the internet, right? Like, let's get that straight. Like in the Philippines, Facebook is the internet. You get free internet through Facebook. So if you don't agree with the terms and conditions, you do not have access to the internet, period. Um, or you pay for it and you can't pay for it. So anyways, going off. Just saying, I mean, we, there's a whole rabbit hole there. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, we're so what we've what I've realized is if you actually gave a shit about people and there was better. For their <laughs> hosts, I mean, maybe some companies do, but uh, it, I don't think that's really most of what's going on. So if you really gave a shit, you would make it easy for people to take control over what happens to them online. And so we just well, I mean, the only things I can talk about because we're now next year is going to be incredible. We're really going to. I'm so fired up. We're going to take control of the internet back and, uh, and it's going to happen. The first step is like, we start, we started putting this little gear icon on ads where now you can click it and say thumbs up, thumbs down. And if you thumbs, we'll never show you that ad again. Uh, we originally started because in a long-term vision is still that we want to partner with publishers all around the, you know, we're, we're on maybe 30% of, of professional media out there. Uh, local, a lot of local news. We want to save local journalism. And so we want to get to the goal, the point where if you, if you don't want to see ads, which are worth like, it's like a 10th of a penny basically is what is being paid for your, uh, to, to steal your attention for that little box and goes to the publisher. We'd love to just say, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll do micro payments per article and you can get rid of all the ads. Wouldn't that, I would, would you pay half of a penny to read that article and not see ads and support? Yeah, and you have a lot, you have a wallet set up and this is something like Brave Browser where basically, you know, you can pay with your BAT cryptocurrency through there already, which is great. Yeah, exactly. And so they've been, they've been taking an approach. Yeah, we've been, we and Brave have been sort of doing this in parallel. And uh, I just, uh, I don't, I worry about people actually wanting to download the browser and getting penetration because it's, it's an annoying problem, but. People, it's not big enough at any one moment for no, most people to ditch Chrome, which gives them syncing all their data and all that stuff. So I'm trying to figure out what a widespread solution might look like. Totally. And I think that that makes sense, actually, having it as, a, as an input into other browsers that have way more traffic than Brave for now. Yeah. So for now, you get feedback on ads, you can do it. You could, And then we're building a website, which is going to give you like what we think will eventually be full control over what happens with your digital online self. And I don't, I don't want to say any more than that, but wouldn't that be a world where it actually, everything was exposed to you in a simple digestible way. And that's the key part, which is it's not, you're not going to go to every one of these services and read the terms and do all the stuff and they have the tech literacy. So you got them. If you really want freedom, it has to be easy. That's what I'm sort of getting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's, you were saying freedom permission, um, you also mentioned kind of the energy that we have, you know, we are batteries and, and energy is super important uh, that kind of ties in with our, where we focus our attention, um, and really cultivating that, that willpower to continue to focus on what we want to, uh, and all of these kind of, yeah, I like the concept of kind of, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts in this case. It's just like all these little distractions, little um, Jill Carlson calls it meta work. Uh, just, there's a lot of meta work 
Uh, she was she was speaking about this in the in the context of being like a, a liberal professional or a consultant, just all the meta work that goes into operating your own business. And I know this through the podcast, like there's a ton of things that I want to do, but I'm not really monetizing this. And so it's like, I can't leverage myself and I'm doing everything. And, but then in your, in your day, your brain is doing all these little meta tasks that you really don't care about. And then you're getting pushed these little meta tasks by your, your web browsers and stuff. And so it's crazy. Um, so that's, that's super interesting that, that work that, um, that work that you're you're doing with Invisibly, I think it's it's extremely important. I wish you could share more. I guess it sounds like there's a- next podcast, man. We're just something that I, I I I've never felt like I had a bigger opportunity to change the world outside of talking about neuroscience. Okay, cool. So we're gonna pivot then to something different. So we we have a few minutes left. I guess I wanted to just I wanted to ask you a little bit about neurohacking and and brain plasticity. Um, what is brain plasticity, first of all? Yeah, so plastic, just it's like, it's, uh, the term comes from the idea of plastic that you can melt it and, sh- and put it into different shapes. So it's changeable. Plastic is really just a, a word that means changeable. Um, and so brain plasticity is, can your brain change? And it can to varying degrees throughout your lifetime. Um, your brain is most flexible when you're young uh, and your brain's still wiring up. People maybe don't realize this, but a lot of what you think is fundamental in the world is not hardwired into your brain, meaning it doesn't have to turn out the way that it does. For example, something as simple as stereo vision. Your brain does not come with a template for stereo vision that you can see bo- out of both eyes. What happens is that you get all the, the, all the inputs from one eye and another eye. They, they, they both go to the back of your brain and they both uh, connect to all some of the same neurons. And what happens is when throughout, just as a baby uh, lives, just by statistics of the world, when they move their head back and forth, objects that are really close to you move a lot and objects that are really distant from you don't move very much. And your brain picks up on the statistics of that and it starts to, to figure out, oh, this little part of my eyeball on one eye corresponds to a slightly different part on the other eye at this distance rate. Uh, at this distance. And so those will now wire together strongly and that cell then is responsible for stereo vision in that part of your world just by statistics, not by magic and pre-wiring. That, that's, that's absolutely incredible. I just want to add, if that was too abstract for people, like it is one, even the ability to see something as fundamental as a line, you do not, you're not born with that. You're born with a bunch of little dots, basically. Your eyeballs see dots like, a, like, a, uh, like an impressionist painting. And in the back of your brain, when you get enough dots in a, uh, in a row, you have a, these little brain cells that then pick that up and say, oh, well, that's a line. But if you raise, this, did this in the 50s, if you raise a cat in an environment where there's only vertical lines, and then they grow up where their brain isn't as plastic and flexible anymore, they cannot, they cannot see a horizontal line. Whoa, really? Absolutely. Wow. Un- undoubtedly. That is, that is crazy. I... There were a couple of, there was one thing you said earlier that I wanted to go back to, which is tied in with, with brain plasticity, because you mentioned that you were talking about machine learning and how it's evolving much faster than our brains. And you mentioned our brains are kind of like fully evolved. Yep. Is that like that? I want to push back on that actually, because I feel like our brains are still evolving over time, but you're the neuroscientist. And perhaps I think, did you mean just like they're just evolving way slower than machine learning is and and therefore there's no way for us to keep up or i mean 
I want to make the big claim on your podcast that the uh, we have reached the end of natural evolution. It's over. And by that, I mean, sure, you can change throughout your lifetime, but the, the genetic and epigenetic inheritance that you get will be no different than that of your children or your parents or your grandparents on any meaningful level. Most people would say the human brain hasn't changed meaningfully in the last 10,000 years, meaning from one generation to the next, you roughly get the same genes from myelination. You roughly get the, there's been slight changes in the gene pool because of disease, but but nothing really that significant. If you took a, a, a human from 10,000 years ago and you raised them in our environment, they would be indistinguishable. And thus, uh, we will be robots long before we evolve anything new. Wow. Dun, dun, dun. No, that's, no, that's, that's fascinating, but we- I'll be dead by that time, but- uh, Maybe not, right? What is this life? You know, all these VCs have enough money to throw at, the, at life extension technology. So maybe you and I will be, we'll have our, you know, one millionth podcast episode in, in, uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's so funny because it seems so obvious to me and I get, maybe that's just, I don't know if it's a hubris or just a, I'm in a bucket or something or, but, but it's just like, do you see how fast technology is moving? We're talking about interfacing our brains. We're going to be in a spot where when you lose a limb, you start to replace it with a robotic arm. We replace your heart with a pacemaker. I mean, all your body parts will be replaced and eventually your brain will be replaced and you will turn in, we will turn into machines naturally, not because there's some scary takeover. We'll elect to be machines. I want machine legs. I want to run 100 miles an hour. Um, and when we get there, you know, that's not that long off versus what are we going to wait 15 generations for your brain to change a little bit? Yeah, but that's, that's fascinating because that's going to require, you know, implants in, in, in the human body for starters. And so people will, will, will have to opt into that, I guess. Um, and then it's a, a question of ultimate control over the software. And that's what, uh, one reason why I think kind of privacy technology and cryptocurrency is super important because in fact, it's like, it's just, it's just encrypting data, right? And so like, what is more valuable data to encrypt than potentially your genetic data, potentially your, you know, your, your memories and, and your, the consciousness history. Are we like, from a consciousness standpoint though, we're still so, so far off from understanding, understanding what forms human consciousness, no? Uh, yeah, it ends up being a question really of like how you specifically define the question. And, um, you know, and so it's like, do I, does anybody have any good reason, explanation of why, what the feeling of love feels like or why red looks like red or whatever colors you can see or why something you know, the qualia of life is what we say, the things that you experience, but you can't put into mathematics, you can't put into physical reality. I think that's the most interesting part. And uh, David Chalmers calls that the hard problem in neuroscience. And no, there, I don't even know how you could answer it. Why does, why does brain cells firing, gives me goosebumps, lead to love and empathy? Why? Yeah. How, what would that, and, and, it becomes wilder and wilder because the, you know there's a technology called TMS, uh, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. But you use a wand and you can stimulate parts of the brain, and so not internal, not from senses. You literally, I can just take your visual cortex, I'll stimulate it, and you will see things that are not there. And I can stimulate your prefrontal cortex, which makes decision making. And if I inhibit it, you will make less long-term favorable decisions. You just will. And so it's like, it's harder and harder for me to hold on to the, this, this woo-woo that we're controlled from some extra dimensional space when I change the brain, you change. 
I, I give you anesthesia, try and stay awake. I give you alcohol, try and have a fat at the same reaction time. I give you a bad environment with no privilege when you're a kid, parents who are abusive or not there at all. Try, and I mean, you think that person is really as capable of making the same decisions not to do crime, let's say, as, as people who have grown up with tons of privilege? It's just not fair. I have a, I have a, the whole justice system is predicated on this idea that we're all equally rational beings, and it's so far from the truth um, that I'm starting some endeavors to try and, you know, I've been on the show called The Doctors just talking about, you know, what do we think about sentencing criminals, uh, people who are convicted between 18 and 25? Are we really going to, uh, are they really, if you're 18, is your brain really the same as somebody who's 35 or 40? Because we know that your, your brain on average is not fully developed. You don't have the full decision making. Why would, well, ins- why would you insur- know- insurance companies know that? I mean, they charge more to an 18 to 25 year old male than anyone else. Um, so why, why then are we equally punitive on the criminal justice side? I mean, I've had 10 discussions in this podcast on criminal justice in the past. That's like, that's another crazy rabbit hole that we can go down. Um, for sure. And I, I totally, I think our system is completely fucked. Um, I think that we need to have a whole rethink of, of punitive justice in America versus restorative justice. Um, you create criminals, um, criminals are, you know, emergent. And speaking of in-group out-group, the very word criminal, uh, is creating in-group out-group. And also that was another comment that you made about words being basically words are just words. Parole, parole, parole. You know, this, this is like an, it's like a, it's like a French or Italian song, which is, it's just like this, this dude is, is, uh, he's, he's saying all these very lovely things to this woman and, and she's responding like words, 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 you know, it's just, it's just words, which I love this thing. Uh, but yeah, but so to your point, right? Like you can stimulate the brain. I simulate a certain section of the brain. It's going to inhibit your decisions. Has anyone figured out how to stimulate a section of the, of the brain and create love, like that film Love Potion Number 9 from back in the day? I think uh, that's actually a technical issue, which is that the area is responsible for that, uh, the initial phase of, we call it like passionate love, that initial phase that's typically characterized in a couple NMR studies, uh, like an MRI thing, uh, by high dopamine. Those centers, those regions in the brain are too deep to stimulate accurately with our current technology. So it's actually just a technology thing that this outer part, the cortex, which is Latin for bark, because it was the last thing to evolve. It's the bark on this other part of our brain, um, but makes us distinctly who we are. Uh, You can stimulate that, but you can't get too much deeper. You can't get to these sort of deeper reptilian structures, the old reptile brain. Um, But Mm. yeah, you can, you can you can encourage you can do stimulation and uh, encourage better long term or discourage long term decision making. You can um, it's pretty it's you can change how much uh, empathy people show because you modify uh, one of the parts that's sort of externally exposed that involves understanding other people. You can nuke you can take that out temporarily. This is all temporary. It's just like a it's like turning your computer off and on kind of thing. Um, mm. Yeah, my my one of my thesis advisors, uh, Marco Iacoboni, is just. His experiments are just fascinating. You'll do an economic exchange game and how nice and kind and considerate you are. If you change, if you stimulate your prefrontal cortex in one way or another, you behave differently. You will be more generous or less generous, predictably. And so it's just hard to hold on. It's, I got to write an article on this and it sounds cold and it's not supposed to be cold, but I got I to gotta jam in a meeting for in a little bit. But I think we all need to consider giving up the concept of free will. And it, I, and, and you're like, oh, what do we do? 
look, the, co- the cost of that is that maybe you don't feel as good about yourself in the universe, but you didn't have any choice over that anyways, and I think you'll get over it. The, the, what, there's a real downside to the idea of free will because free will is, is actually just the idea of magic. It's the idea that, oh, you have this brain. Sure, you were raised in a really, uh, uh, you were beaten by your, uh, your parents and you were sexually abused and you grew up in a very poor neighborhood, but I want you to make exactly the same reasonable decisions. You, you made the choice uh, as anybody else who grew up in a, in a rich neighborhood and had everything in the world. You need to make the exact same decisions and that's what free will invokes. And it tells you that you're supposed to override that brain has nothing to do with it and it just doesn't make any sense it it, it, it allows us to shame people shame lives in the space of free will you shame people because what they did if i said you were a car and i put a, a brick on the accelerator and you drove off a cliff no one's going to shame the car you are an irrational irresponsible car you were a machine that had a very particular trigger that sent you in a very particular direction and when i you know inject alcohol get this response you know put you in this situation get this response we're just there's just there's all this evidence stacking up that people respond to exactly what their brain experiences if i cut out your motor cortex you cannot free will your way into moving it's not going to happen so the shame is really like oh you did this thing and you're wrong and bad and you should you had the choice to do it and and i'll just end with this i remember in la coming home to the warehouse uh, after a party and it was a brother and sister that were hanging out with us and the brother was sharing how he was suffering from depression and his sister said, I think you could snap out of it whenever you want to. And I was just like, oh, the free will argument should have overcome your brain chemistry. It's okay to motivate people and it's okay to do that, but to expect people to invoke magic, um, I think has got to go and and hurtful to society. I can't believe we're ending on that. I have so much more to ask, but it's my fault. I was, I was 15, 20 minutes late. Well, we're going to have to do a follow-up on that. Um, you know, I, I have some further questions. I'll re-listen and then maybe we can do a follow-up episode if you're down. This was super fun. I love, I mean, yeah, we'll leave it on the cliffhanger. I'd love to come back. I, I just, uh, you're just thinking about the stuff that's so important right now. Like what, what is the, your newsletters on the meta experience of society. I just read it all. I was like, oh my God, like, we're being pushed and pulled and we're being manipulated this way and we're being polarized. And you're like, that is so important to talk about. So I'm, I'm so glad that you think about it and, and, and consolidate it for the average person uh, to understand and act on. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate that. I'm actually, um, yeah, I'm excited for this project that I just heard about from David Schmachtenberger, uh, which is about just that, what you just described. Uh, and I, I just, uh, yeah, I think we can do better. That's all systems wise. Uh, maybe we have the free will to change to change uh, to change the world we live in. You learn, man. There's nothing wrong with biological machines that have feelings, and that all that's valid. But I guess I'm just saying, hey, maybe you're dealt biology, and we need to create structures to stop us from destroying ourselves. Respect. Yeah. Anyways. Respect. All right, man. Uh, such a great time. I'm looking forward. Thank to you it so now. much for coming on. Yeah, we're doing it again for sure. This is so fun. Oh yeah. Better mark. Later, All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. 
Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. Bye.